0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. In a time when families are broken and torn apart, it's refreshing to hear stories of those that have persevered in faithfulness. At the ERLC National Conference, Crawford Loritz wasn't shy in sharing about the legacy of the greatest influence in his life next to Jesus in his talk never walk away lessons on integrity from a father who lived it we hope you're encouraged by this message it's just wonderful to be here with you um, about 20 years ago I wrote a book entitled never walk away lessons on integrity from a father who lived it and obviously is about my dad's incredible impact on my heart and life. In fact, next to Jesus Christ, my father has had the most uh, important, strategic, wonderful influence on my life. Who I am today, so much of what I think and how I feel and how I act, and particularly my approach to my marriage and our family has popped signature all, all over me. You know, Dan Fogelberg wrote a song a number of years ago, uh, a ballad. Part of the refrain of that song goes something like this. The leader of the band is tired. His eyes are growing cold. His blood is in my instrument and his song is in my soul. My life is just a poor attempt to imitate the man. I'm just a living legacy to the leader of the band. My father was the grandson of a slave. Uh, He was born in 1914, February 13th, 1914. He was the youngest boy of 14 children. Uh, So his grandfather, Peter, my great-grandfather, was a slave. Peter, they say, my dad remembers him. Peter lived to be an old man. Peter was a singing and a praying man, he said. Some of my father's most vivid memories were seeing uh, his grandfather rock back and forth on the whole homestead of... uh, uh, there in Catawba County, North Carolina, a place called Newton Conover, where he would just sing and pray. Peter was an illiterate man, couldn't read, couldn't write, uh, but he loved Jesus. And get this, he passionately loved the word of God. Uh, the stories told, the legend is, is that he would have his children and grandchildren read him familiar passages of scripture over and, over and over and over and over and over and over again. And the old boy had committed a lot of that to memory. But here's what I want you to catch. Uh, despite the fact that Peter was a slave, and uh, let's not glorify slavery, uh, families were intentionally broken up. When uh, young boys reached about 14, 15, 16 years of age, they bought a high price. They were studded out, so to speak. And so it was not our, shi- our most bright and shining moment, created a whole lot of damnable things that we are still dealing with in our culture today. But despite all of that, I don't know what happened to Peter. Peter developed a passion and a love for God and a love for his family. And because of his commitment to Jesus Christ and his commitment to his family, he forged generations of strong men, strong male leadership, and strong families. Um, I stand here just humbled. I, I, I don't take credit for any of this. I don't know why I was born and raised in a household where my dad showed up and where he loved the Lord and he loved his family and he left a signature over us. Why wasn't I born in a situation where he wasn't there? Uh, why wasn't I born with huge deficits in my heart and life? And what I want to say today and underscore before us is that, you know, we, uh, one of my great concerns about where evangelicalism is going today is that somehow or another, in our desire to become intellectually palatable and acceptable in the marketplace of life, and to broker influences in the corridors of power, and to not be looked at dumb and stupid Christians, part of my concern is that we're wandering away from the spiritual core of who we really are and the power that's necessary and needed. And don't ever underestimate the gospel. Don't ever underestimate the power of the Spirit of God. And don't ever underestimate the power of prayer to change your life and future generations. That is to be the centerpiece of our parenting. It's not the quid pro quo or the various strategies and coping mechanisms, although they might be important, and the tips that we get in the books that we read and the blogs that we read and podcasts and that kind of thing. Absolutely wonderful. But at the end of the day, the thing that's going to shape your future, shape your family, help your child to make it home before dark spiritually, or a few calluses on your knees with an open Bible and a walk before God. And that must never be forsaken. That has got to be the centerpiece of what, what we're really, really all about. My father played baseball in the old Negro Leagues, and uh, he lost uh, an eye in a coal mining accident back in the day when he was playing the... Uh, late 30, 30s and early 40s, uh, they had to work in the offseason. And he was a natural gas explosion there in Kentucky. And he lost the right eye and uh, moved to New Jersey. And that's where my sisters and myself, we were born. Pop always showed up. Uh, he wasn't perfect, but he was a man of impeccable integrity. Impeccable Integrity. My father, I, I, this is not Pollyannish, this is not, I'm not revisiting history, but my dad never made a promise to me or my sisters that he did not keep. Now, he may have said, son, I would be at your ball game," and he had discovered he had to work and had to, uh, to work something else out. But on balance, he never made a promise that he didn't keep. His word was his bond. He was, uh, he was a little bit paranoid about showing up. In fact, I couldn't even quit a part-time job that I had as a teenager. Uh, I bet I have a good, uh, good excuse for that because he said, if you told that man you're going to show up, you show up. And we've kind of raised our kids the same way, especially our boys. When they were playing sports, my rule around the household, if you play, you stay. You don't quit because it's hard. You don't quit because it's difficult. You don't quit because there's a little bit of opposition. You don't quit because you don't like the situation. You show up. You finish the endurance ride. And one of my abiding concerns about some of us in this generation right now is that we won't stick around long enough to get what we need in order for us to get what we want. And sometimes what we need is to finish that endurance ride and integrity, integrity is refined and built in the crucible of suffering and adversity. Integrity cannot be strengthened unless there's opposition because integrity is lodging who you really are and what you really, what you really Really believe. The essence of parenting is to be a portrait of the desired destination. The essence of parenting is not necessarily great insights and tools. The truth of the matter is that the power and the authority that we have to shape the next generation is lodged in what we model and what they see in front of us and not necessarily what we say. In fact, that's what the Bible's all about. The Bible's into prophetic leadership. And that is that if you're going to lead anything in the Scripture, and this is the reason why character is so terribly important, if you're going to lead anything in the Scripture, it's not about your ability to plan and to have insights and to line things up and to recruit and to develop the resources and to think outside the box and all of these things that we celebrate today. But if you're going to lead anything in the Bible, anything that has God's name over it, anything that stewards what God wants to do from one generation to the next, then you have to embrace the reality that you've got to be the portrait of the desired destination. There's no other way. And whatever I want my children to be, they have to see it in me. They have to see me aggressively moving toward that. Because they were born, they were born to be drawn toward what they see, what they see. Now, my dad, he didn't have any, I uh, didn't have a college degree. He was a salt of the earth kind of person, but his understanding of the word of God and his understanding, understanding of what, um, what it took to be the leader in his household and what he saw from his father, Milton, my grandfather, and his great-grandfather, Peter, he passed on, that he realized that if he didn't want his children to lie, he better not be telling a bunch of lies. He understood that if he wanted his children to be people who would stand up and look people in the eye and tell the truth and follow through on their commitments, then he had better do the same. If he wanted kids that would love their wives and husbands and put them first in their lives, then he better not dog out my mother and, and put her down or disrespect her or treat her. If he wanted us kids to go to church, then He needed to make sure that he was there leading the way. Integrity, integrity, integrity. Integrity is a state of being whole, undivided, moral predictability, behavior and choices that reflect your core beliefs and convictions. That's what integrity is really all about. My dad used to say to me as I was growing up, and particularly I was facing difficult times and maybe I didn't want to follow through on something and I said I was going to do something and boy, he would pull me aside, said, son, all you have at the end of the day is what you say. That's all you have. That's all you have. And you better be good by what comes out of your mouth. Integrity. If you say you are this, then it needs to be reflected in how you act. I'm really concerned with our culture. We're gigging and gaming one another. The images are all so very important to us. We heard uh, last night about that. Uh, We're texting and tweeting and Facebooking and Instagramming and Snapchatting and all of this. And, And we actually think that we are what people think we are rather than leading with who we really are. And it's terribly, terribly, terribly important. Parenting is all about preparing a generation for a time that you cannot see and that's the driving force behind all of us one of the great benefits of suffering and one of the great benefits of Jim Crow interestingly enough in the sovereignty of God is because they didn't have a lot of margin they didn't have a lot of filler they didn't have a lot of applause from the broader community And so my great-grandfather my grandfather my dad and And my uncles who grew up during Jim Crow, they realized that all they had was one another and all that they had was home. And they were passionate about things becoming better. And they had a vision for you doing more than what they were able to do. Boy, I tell you what, when my dad, if if you wanted to hear my dad wax eloquent, Just let one of us drag ourselves and show that we were not really appreciative of the price that he had to pay and my uncles and aunts had to pay in that generation. He would say to me on more than one occasion, hey, hey, son, is this the best you can do? Is this the best you can do? Do you understand where we couldn't go? Do you understand what we couldn't have? Do you understand the opportunities that God has given to you? So, son, you better you better step up and act like you're going somewhere. These people paid a price for you to have this opportunity. Parenting takes a look at where things ought to be and where that child could be and leverages the moment in history to get them there. That's what parenting is all about. Your child is just passing through, and our job is to point them toward God and point them toward the door. That's what our responsibility is. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah, I tell you what, man, I'm just, we're empty nesters, hallelujah. Go means get out. And we have a three-day rule at our house when our adult kids, now my grandkids, they can say as long as they want. God bless them. But we got a three-day rule at our house. If God could raise Jesus in three days, you can get up out of my house in three days. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Y'all just bring all kinds of drama, man. I'm just saying. (laughs) We're good or bad. See you later. (laughs) When my father was dying back in 1995, he had congestive heart failure. And uh, the last few years of his life was very difficult for me because here's a man that worked hard his whole life. My father worked. uh, He usually was working more than one job and uh, took care of his family. His great joy was being, being able to provide for us. And to see him go downhill was just, I mean, it was just gut-wrenching for me. Strong, yet he could barely make it. Well, the end was coming, and he was dying. And I'll never forget this. It was a poignant moment. I was standing next to his bedside, and he just looked at me in a moment of lucidity and said, "Uh, boy, I did the best I could. I said, pop, you did a great job. He said, son, I want you to take care of your mom and your sisters. What was he doing? He was passing a torch, passing a baton. The race is over. My whole life, I've always wanted to be like him. My whole life. I always wanted to think like him my whole life. I'm in leadership now, and I tell people all the time, you know, my greatest lessons in leadership, sorry, I mean, I, you know, I should have read your blog. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't read your book. <laughs> sorry, but my greatest lessons in leadership came from the grandson of a slave who day in and day out and day in and day out every day of his life showed up and when and he would blow it and mess up. You make it right. I'll tell you this quick story before I slide into First Kings chapter 2 and talk about the handoff, and I'll be done. When I was 12 years old, you know, typical 12-year-old guy, I had a number of brain cramps. and um, <laughs> On the way to school in the spring, we would walk past this factory that made these chains, and I don't know why I did this, but I was with some friends of mine the week. There was some open boxes, and we stole some chains. There was like, change the necklaces and stuff. We stole them and uh, thought we had gotten away with something. This was the absolute worst day of my life, though, because uh, what happened, my father used to work nights, but he rotated one evening a week that he was off, and he happened to be off that evening in the providence and sovereignty of God. And uh, so the telephone rang at the house, and uh, it was a policewoman named Mrs. Brown. Yeah, I don't want to say some things that's being recorded with Mrs. Brown. Let's just say she was she was tough. And um, <laughs> there was this kid by the name of Stanley that looked just like me, believe it or not. I know it's impossible. But we could pass for twins. Well, when Mrs. Brown called the house, my mother gave the phone to my dad, and my dad's listening, and as he's, she's talking to him, and he's looking at me, and I'm saying, this is not going to end well. And so... Um, she he, she told him well Stanley had told Mrs Brown where to go where she didn't need an overcoat okay you got that picture and um, um, she thought that I told her that now I have to confess I felt like it on a number of occasions but I didn't do that didn't it so the you know the, uh, Pop hangs up the phone and he looks at me and said boy have you lost your mind. And I was talking fast. I, Papa, I didn't do that. I didn't, he didn't do disrespect. I didn't do that. And, and right after that, I kid you not, some, uh, the, there was a knock on the front door. He opened the door, and there were policemen there. What had happened was that my friends who had stolen the chains, and I was a part of that group, told on me they had gotten caught, and this was the worst night of my young life. I won't bore you with all the details of the story, but I will tell you this. At the... We went down to the factory and got the liver scared out of us, and Pop dropped a couple of those boys off. They didn't have dads in the home. And uh, when we walked into the house, I had not seen my dad cry except for at funerals of his siblings. And I'll never forget this. He looked at me, and a tear began to trickle down his cheeks. He said, son, you hurt my heart. If you wanted someone, you asked me, you don't ever have to steal anything. You hurt my heart. Then he did a few other things to make sure that my behavior would (laughs) (laughs) line up with the expectations. So, (laughs) yeah, you weren't hurt that bad. (laughs) That crushed me. It broke me. It broke me. I forgot about the other exclamation mark. But the reason why it broke me is because I always wanted to be like my father. And he would not have done that. He had connected with my heart. In 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, David is dying. David is leaving, the legendary David. And as he's dying, he calls his son Solomon in to make a grand handoff. David was consciously aware of the fact that legacies are not guaranteed. They're not guaranteed. And yet Solomon was being tapped. As next in line, David was about to be in the very presence of God. And it's almost as if, as you read the text, the emotional context is really compelling. It's as if David is reaching out and grabbing his son, sutton, by the lapels and pulling him close. And these four verses, it's almost as if David is saying, son, this is what I've lived for. These are the footprints in the sand. And I need you to embrace What you were born for. And parenthetically, as we raise our children. From the time they're little somethings. From the time they're tiny. We need to be whispering in their ears. That they were born for the glory of God. And for the plan and the purposes of God. This is what you were born for. And everything in your life has to be lined up. For your moment in history. That you're just passing through here. You're going to be very dead one day. One day, God's going to say, give me back my breath. What were you born for? What are you living for? What are you doing? And it's amazing when people are dying, how essence they are. All the other garbage and all the other frills and all the other stuff, it doesn't make any difference anymore. David is dying. So as he dies, he charges Solomon with these three things. He charges Solomon to live courageously. He charges Solomon to live obediently. And he charges Solomon to live faithfully. I'll say a few words and I'll be done. First of all, he charges Solomon, I want you to live, Solomon. I want you to live. I want you to live courageously. Verse 1 says, when David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Now notice this line. Be strong. Show yourself a man. My time is up. It's coming to a close. The ball is being placed in your hand. Solomon, I am challenging you. To press through the challenges and the opportunities of your responsibilities. I need you, Solomon, to step up. In fact, in the Hebrew, the expression, show yourself a man, literally is become a man. And I think what David was saying to Solomon, that uh, Solomon, 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 I need you to rise up to what you were born for. Um, Solomon was to become what being the king of Israel required. Required. I could get off into this, but I don't have time to do this. But I actually think I actually think we cuddle this generation a little bit too much. I actually think we soften them a little bit too much. We don't give them what they need. I believe the text doesn't say it, that perhaps David sensed some weakness in Solomon. Solomon was not like his daddy. David ran for 16 years hiding out in caves from, from Saul. And David was a tough dude. And David experienced some hard stuff. He, he didn't silver spoon it. Solomon grew up with a little bit more cotton around him. And a little more cushion around him. And a little more options. And, a, and he had a little more resources. And he had stuff to choose from. And David probably sensed in him, Solomon, I, I don't know. That you have the grit and the resilience that you need to do what needs to be done. You have to show yourself a man. Show yourself a man. Conviction versus compliance. And I'm concerned about how we're raising some of our kids. I understand the need to protect them from the evils and, and the sin and the hellishness that's in our culture. Don't get me wrong. The margins are, are almost erased right now. I, I get that. I get that. I, we pray for our, our 11 grandkids and what they're going through. I mean, there's this, this too many opportunities for evil. But I got to tell you, protection is not development. I'm terribly concerned about this movement among some of us that wants to hover over our kids and pull them back and and sanitize and sterilize their environments in such a way that they don't interact with the evil world, a dark world in which they were born to redeem and impact and be salt and light in. The very thing that we don't want to happen ends up happening to them where they have content and intellectual biblical framework and clarity in their thinking, but no conviction in their souls. Because conviction can only be developed in the context of testing. A ship is safe in harbor, but that's not what it was built for. So David says, Solomon, hey, buddy, you have to step into some stuff. Live courageously. Don't run from the challenges, but run to God to get what you need to face the challenges, Solomon. Secondly, David is dying. He grabs his son by the lapels, and I can just hear the whisper Solomon, show yourself a man. Secondly, he says, Solomon, live obediently. I tend to words here in verse 3. And keep the charge of the Lord your God walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies as it is written in the law of Moses. Uh, When you do exposition, you always have to pay attention to the emotional context. And, 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 And I think this is biographical. I think David was saying to Solomon in so many words, Solomon. And it's not not just about the Davidic covenant, not just about the promises of David. I think he had that in mind because the text says so. But I think there's something else going on here. I think David wanted his son to love God's word the way he did. He wanted him to cherish it the way he did. Solomon, you need to bring your life in line with the truth of God's word. You need to live it not just speak it not just quote it not just argue your paradigms and all that stuff about it but you need to live this stuff you need to live it 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 we've had this conversation with four of our kids our kids uh thank God they're walking with the lord our two sons are pastors are Two daughters, they're raising great families. They love the Lord Jesus and they love his word and thank God for it. But all was not rosy and that kind of thing in our house. So they went through bumps in the road in their teenage years. And I had with each one of them, I had this conversation, sobering conversation, sometimes with tears trickling down my cheeks because of choices and decisions. And I said to each one of them, I cannot walk with God for you. I can't do it. I can't obey God's word for you. I cannot do that. You're going to have to own your own responses to God. Your environment is not your surrogate commitment. And this is what David was saying to Solomon. Solomon, listen to me, buddy. Can't do it, man. Can't do it. I need you to cherish this book. If you're going to be successful, if you're going to make it, you're going to have to walk with God. You have to love this book. You have to listen to this book. By the way, uh, this whole idea of the word of God being central and prominent in our household has sort of been a theme of the Loritz family. Um, The first words, our son, our, our children, and our 11 grandchildren ever heard me speak was not, oh, you're cute, honey. Oh, you look like your mother. You look like your grandmother. You look like this. The very first words when I held them, our youngest grandson was born four months ago, and I got a chance to hold little Hendrix The first words he heard was Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate therein day and night that you may observe to do all that is written therein, and then you will make your way prosperous and you'll have good success. And David was telling Solomon, hey, buddy, don't get cute. Don't get cute. Don't, don't think that because I'm your daddy and you have on the throne and, you know, you've inherited this, this throne at a, uh, at a very important time and, you know, I've become a living legend and, and this stuff is being passed off to you. Don't, don't, don't think that this is sustainable, that somehow or another vicariously my background you can broker and that'll make you a good person. You need to walk with this, son. You need to love it. You need to raise our kids and say, you don't have to do me proud. You don't have to be anything that you think I want you to be. Take that off the table. But you do have to obey God. You've got to obey him. Walk in his statutes. David's dying. Reaches out and grabs his boy by the lapels. Solomon, you got to live courageously. Solomon, you got to live obediently. But then he says, thirdly, you've got to live faithfully. I suppose uh, technically faithfulness is a subset of obedience that that's probably accurate, but I want to parse it out a bit here because he says here in verse, uh, verse four, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their hearts, what is he saying? David is saying, hey, look, you know the mess in my life, okay? David ended well, but he had some major oops. I believe he's saying, you, you, know, you know the mess between me and your mama, okay? It's well documented. <laughs> Wasn't cool. You know about Nathan. You know about my brokenness. You know about my repentance by the grace of god i've gotten back on the right track boy and you have got to be faithful in other words you've got to remember where you came from and what's been placed in your hands i'm always intrigued by that story i tell it so much about uh, the influence sammy davis jr had on a and an entertainer by the name of Gregory Hines. Some of you don't even know those names, and it just dawns on me how young you are, and one of the cardinal rules of giving illustration is that the people have to identify with it, so just bear with me. And so Sammy Davis, Jr., the legendary entertainer, had a huge impact on Gregory Hines, who was also a very well-known entertainer. Uh, Sammy Davis, Jr. was dying of throat cancer, and Hines wanted to pay a tribute to him Sammy Davis Jr. had a, just a tremendous influence on Heinz's life uh, and the development of a career. Gave him money and opened doors, made calls and this kind of thing, to get him gigs and what have you. So here's Sammy Davis Jr. He's dying. He was always a slight man, but his body's totally emaciated. As Heinz told the story, he walks into Sammy Davis Jr.'s living room, gives him a tribute, sits down next to him, tells him how much he meant to him. The tears are flowing down their cheeks. And so Heinz leans over, realizing that this is probably the last time he's going to see him. At this point, Sammy Davis Jr. couldn't talk. The cancer had just ravaged his body and took away his ability to speak. So Heinz leans over and kisses him goodbye. And as he's walking toward the door, he hears behind him this shuffling. And he turns around to his utter amazement. There is Sammy Davis Jr., and as soon as Hines turns around, he goes. What are we placing into the hands? What's been placed in our hands? What's the enduring stuff that you are doing to your kids? What are you placing before them? See, faithfulness means to obey God in the little things. It is a daily commitment to do the right, honorable things, and often the difficult things. Often the difficult things. See, to me, greatness is not notoriety. Greatness is not recognition. I, you know... Somebody, I was being interviewed several years ago, and somebody said something. They heard, heard something, and they used the word "boy." You, you're, you're approaching greatness, or something like that. First of all, they need to get out more. But the, the other, but when they said that, I said, "No, no, 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 no." I greatness is buried side by side in Old Dominion Cemetery in Roanoke, Virginia, Crawford and Sylvia Lawrence. Because they were faithful. Faithful. And David was tell his boy, every single day, the small things, the big things, the things that people don't see behind closed doors, get after it, Solomon. Get after it one of the greatest things you can do rather than trying to raise your kids to be a great speaker or a great athlete or this kind of thing this kind of thing teach them how to just to be consistent and following through on the noble right things you hurt my heart son why because Loritz, we don't steal you show up boy Heard you were late for that little job you had. Show up. Some time ago, um, my oldest son, Brian and I, uh, we were speaking at, uh, that was a few years ago. We were speaking at the, uh, the Billy Graham center at the Cove in Asheville, North Carolina. And, uh, While we were there, I said to Brian, we had a little break in the afternoon. I said, you know, do you want to go back down to Conover, North Carolina? It's less than an hour away. That's the old homestead. That's where where Peter held forth with my grandfather, Milton, and where my dad was born. And uh, Brian was excited because he hadn't been there since he was a little guy. So we went on down I-40 there and got off at the Newton-Conover exit uh, and uh, snaked over the railroad tracks I hadn't been there in years back to second street I was surprised I could find my way over there and as a as you cross on second street on the right hand side is a little tiny church called Thomas Chapel Amy Amiz- Zion Church interestingly enough my grandfather had given the land for that little church to be built on behind the church there's a cemetery a cemetery interestingly enough was there before the church was there there's a cemetery and about a half to almost two-thirds of the bodies in that cemetery are related to Loritz's. And so as Brian and I were uh, walking around the cemetery, I was reminding him of some of who some of these people were. You know, that's Pop's brother, your great-uncle Wardell, and that's Uncle Hayes right there. Here's Uncle, Uncle Emery, and there's, there's Aunt Annie right there. There's your great-grandfather, my grandfather, Milton, Pop's dad, and there's his wife, Anna, right here. And as I began to just tell him about these people, I was ambushed by emotion and I began to weep. And I said to Brian, I said, son, these people paid your tuition. They paid your tuition. And I guess the charge that I want to make to you today, as you look at your children and you look at the future and you look at a time that you cannot see and you're making the investments in their lives and doing the drudgery day in and day out and you're correcting them and disciplining them and you're laughing with them and you're going through the struggles. Are they ever going to get out of my house or all this stuff that's going on? Keep in mind, You're paying their tuition. What are you investing in them? Will they be able to live courageously? Will they live obediently? And will they live faithfully? Holy Father, thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for what you mean to us. Lord, the most intimidating thing we do is to parent. You've entrusted with us those precious lives that bear the image of our great God. There's a devil out there. There's all kinds of mess. They have their own temptations and issues. But Spirit of the living God, we pray that you'll help us to roll up our sleeves so that we can look each one in the eye When that moment comes and say, by the grace of God, I did the best I could. We love you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the ERLC podcast. For more resources like this, visit ERLC.com. And remember to join us next week as we hear from NFL player Benjamin Watson.